You're listening to the Inside the Mix podcast with your host, Mark Matthews. Hello and welcome to the Inside the Mix podcast. I'm Mark Matthews, your host, musician, producer, and mix and mastering engineer. You've come to the right place if you want to know more about your favorite synth music artists, music engineering and production, songwriting, and the music industry. I've been writing, producing, mixing, and mastering music for over 15 years, and I want to share what I've learned with you. Hey folks, and welcome back to the Inside the Mix podcast. If you are a new listener, please do uh, hit subscribe on the podcast. And thank you for joining me today. I probably got that around the wrong way. And if you're a returning listener, welcome back to the podcast. Now, in this episode, I am very excited to welcome our guest. There's a mixer, engineer, and producer, Adrian Hall. So I'm just going to run through a bit of a bio here for the audience listening if you're not familiar with Adrian. So he's got a wealth of experience working on all kinds of projects with artists at all levels of the industry, from worldwide household names up to up and coming unsigned bands. Equally at home, tracking a live band with a studio full of musicians or being left to mix tracks on his own. Adrian is both a technically adept and creative engineer and has worked with artists such as Tori Amos, Depeche Mode, Goldfrapp, The Black Eyed Peas, Alicia Keys, Robbery Williams, Shakira and Robin and, uh, and, and many more on top of that. And he's going to share with us some mixed engineering pearls of wisdom that will no doubt inspire and improve your next project. Adrian, thank you for joining me today. And how are you? I'm very well, thank you. My pleasure to be here. Just, I'm looking forward to this. It's going to be fun. Fantastic. Yes, me too. Me too. It's, uh, for the audience listening, it was um, Dom, I think, who put me in touch with you, if I remember rightly. So, that's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah. correct. Yeah, the Don Morley episode. So after this episode, if you haven't listened to that one, do go check that one out. I think it's episode 56. I could be wrong. I could be yeah, wrong. Yeah, he's great, Dom. I mean, he's, he's brilliant. So we, we were at Metropolis together for many years when we were both, when we were both training. So, yeah, he's great. Yeah, yeah. He's a, that episode in itself has proved to be a very popular one. So no doubt this one will be as well. So I think it's quite cool, Adrian, if we just start off with a bit of um, your background, really. How did it all begin? How did your mix engineer journey start? Um, I, I I went into it in a slightly roundabout route in that I actually went to university and studied uh, acoustics, acoustics and vibration. I spent four years at Southampton um, and got a Master of Engineering degree. Uh, and I was all set to be an acoustic consultant, you know, had worked in my summers for the same company, a really good acoustic consultancy. I was all set there. Um, but I'd ha- always had this recording bug. So... Um, I kind of gave it all up to make tea in a recording studio, essentially. Um, threw away, a, you know, I'd, I'd probably be on a nice company salary now, company car, you know, pension. <laughs> and it all it all went out the window, really, for uh, yeah, to, to make tea and mend headphones in, in a studio. Amazing. So with regards to, uh, it's interesting you mentioned that about the, the master's degree, because that's Southampton Solent. Is that correct? Uh, no, it's the South, University of Southampton. Oh, place called of Southampton. The, yeah, the ISVR, Institute yeah. of Sound and Vibration Research, which is, it's like one of the, one of two places in the country to study acoustics. Yeah, because interestingly, um, I um, almost went down that route myself. So I remember did, I did an open day down at Southampton Solent and um, I went in the, I can never pronounce it correctly, the anoic, anoic chamber. Yeah, anoic. never get it right. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. it, anoic chamber. Yeah, yeah. you go in and it's, it's dead, basically. Yeah, that's um, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, we, had, yeah. we had one of those. Um, well, there were, interestingly, there were two rooms right next to each other. One was the anoic chamber, which was, I think it's one of the largest in Europe. It's pretty mm. huge, the RSVR. So you walk in and, you know, you're, you're, you're walking on a great, you're elevated above six foot foam wedges and the, the room's huge but completely dead yeah and you know they'd bring in whatever your car engines and loudspeakers might have a test them in there but then right next door which I, people don't talk about this so much but there was an echoic chamber okay. which was like solid concrete walls hard plastered uh floor and ceiling and walls yeah. so it's like a huge squash court like like if you snapped your fingers in there it sounded like a gunshot had gone off wow it was because the, the reverberation was so intense. I, I forget how long the reverb time was, something like 30 seconds or something. It's ridiculous. Mm. And the aim of that is to create a diffuse sound field. So you put something in there, it makes noise, and sound is coming from literally all directions because the reflections yeah. are so hard and so strong. So, yeah, right next to each other, these completely different acoustic environments. It's yeah. crazy. I'd, I'd, <laughs> never, I'd never consider it, considered it from the other perspective mm. of actually creating an environment where it is so reflective. What is it like? Because yeah. I, I know when you go into an anoic chamber and um, there's a certain feeling about it. When you go into a, a room whereby you've got all those reflections, what, what is it yeah. like on like your sort of it, 
mental your the psychology behind it is it quite weird it's yeah i mean it's 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 really intense because yeah. in an anechoic chamber you get no reflections coming back at you so if i'm talking to you and you're 10 feet away and you turn around mm. and your voice is going into the wall you know i really it's really hard to hear somebody even if they're mm. talking quite loudly um, you don't realize how much of your environment and, and the, the in, in a studio or, or or in a control room you're actually getting from the reflections yeah um and obviously the echoic chamber is the complete opposite it's really intense the smallest yeah. sound is really loud yeah um so everything's kind of magnified uh, it's, yeah, it's 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 fun. I mean, you know, you'd never want to record anything in there, but um, yeah. yeah, it sounds. I, I I'd love to. I'm gonna have to put that on my sort of bucket list to go yeah, away to these yeah. chambers because I'd never considered it before. It sounds interesting. Do you do you uh, still do any of the the acoustic side of things? Nah, nah, no, no, not at all, not at all. Gave that all up. So yeah, I mean, it it helps sometimes if I'm in a studio and you know in a live room, you can kind of suss out a live room pretty quickly. Yeah, in the sense of okay. This isn't going to work for what I need. Let's put carpets down or baffle this or do that, you know. But, no, all the testing side of things and the math side of things I totally don't use. You know, it's all gone. It's all gone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. I, did, I ended up doing a master's in music uh, production and engine, right. music production and audio engineering. Um, yep. So I tossed up between the two. And admittedly, yeah, yeah, yeah. I do use it, to be fair. But, yeah, yeah. I, I was so I was almost, almost there with the acoustics. I almost yeah, went down yeah. that route. Um, yeah, I mean, after, after that, like, when I decided I want to do recording, then I did go to um, SAE, School mm. of Audio Engineering, which which at the time there was only one in, in, in the UK, it was in London. And it was, uh, you know, two-inch tape, uh, SSLs and Neves. They, they had a Neve VR and they had, um, the year I went was the first year they got an SSL E-series. So, and they had, a, you know, two-inch 24-track machines, which at the time, I think Pro Tools at the time was, four tracks or eight tracks mm. um so it was you know it was still very much that world and i i guess i was kind of one of the last generation of engineers to be trained on tape um yeah so it was it was during that time you know when i was at metropolis which i joined shortly after that yeah that the whole transition went away from 48 track analog on a big ssl to by the time i left people were starting to mix in the box mm-hmm. um but not quite, if you know what I mean. It was kind of, it was almost yeah. there, you know. So do they, so, yeah. in theory then, I mean, you're saying they started to mix in the box. Do they not, I, I don't know if you would know actually uh, whether or not you're still in contact with them, but do they not still teach that process of using the, the larger consoles and the 48 tracks and then cutting it to tape? Is there not a, a call for them to do that? I think, I, I don't know, very occasionally I go down the, I go down to SAE London and do a masterclass. It's like mm. one day a year or something, maybe they'll ask me down. Or go down and listen to some student mixes and give some feedback, that kind of mm. thing. Um, I haven't seen a two-inch machine in there. It seems to be Pro Tools, mm. which would make sense. You know, I yeah. mean, two-inch is such a specialist thing now. Um, that, I mean, I, I don't think I've used two-inch tape in about a decade. Yeah. Maybe half inch. I've, I've mixed a half inch maybe about eight years ago. Yeah. But uh, I don't have a tape machine in my studio. I'm, I'm Pro Tools. I'm digital, you know, so. Are you, I see some outboard gear behind yeah. you there. Are you, have you got like a mixture of the two then? Are you working some in the box, a mixture of outboard and then digital? Yeah, essentially. I mean, do you want me to swivel around? I can yeah, show you yeah, a little bit. Yeah, yeah, please do, yeah. So, I mean, there's, there is quite a lot of outboard. Oh, yeah. Uh, so... Yeah, it's kind of outboard racks. Um, some SSL stuff up the top there. Fusion, yeah. Manly New Mew, uh, and then that's control surface, SSL control surface, and obviously Pro Tools and mm-hmm. screens. But essentially, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm mixing in Pro Tools. Yeah. Uh, but I have 24, 24 IO on my rig. Okay. So I use hardware inserts. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I'm using Pro Tools summing. Yeah. But but obviously, like, I'll send the money channels, you know, um, <laughs> kick, snare, bass, mm-hmm. lead vocal, maybe a couple of other little bits through the, you know, through some of the outboard and back in. And either record it back in or, or write down the settings. Um, but, I mean, honestly, these days, um, I can't really tell if a mix has been done in the box or if it's been done analog. Do you know what I mean? The, the, yeah. the plugins and what you can do in the box now is sonically great you know um 
So certainly for your listeners that are worried about, oh, I have to use analog, have to do this, or I must use analog summing or whatever, I, I can't tell the difference. Do, do you know what I mean? It's, it's yeah. more a workflow thing. So if I'm going for a particular sound, you know, if I'm working with more of a alternative rock band or something, then, you know, I might, you know, run stuff through... Oh, make my hand go the right way. The the, the, the SSL, I've got a, a bus plus and a fusion, so that goes across the mix. Yeah. So you get that SSL flavor across the mix straight away. Or if it's a more soft acoustic thing, then I might use uh, the Manly New Mew, and I've got a I've got a kind of um, A Designs Pultec stereo EQ there. So so just across the mix bus, it's immediately softer. Got some valves in the chain. It's just a different vibe to mix through. Um, but nothing that you c- couldn't really recreate with plugins, you know. I mean, obviously, it's nice to have the hardware, and, and I love it. Don't get me wrong, but um, mm. but you know, it's it's a it's a subtle thing. Um, yeah. And like I say, I can't tell. You know, you can't listen to the radio and go, "Oh, that's an analog mix, and that's a digital mix." And, you know. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I remember. I think I was. I think it was when I was chatting to Dom. It might have been Mike actually. I chatted to Mike Exeter as well. Few, oh right, yeah, yeah, a yeah. few weeks back. Yeah. And um, it's. I think the idea summarised that ultimately the listener, I mean, isn't too bothered about the journey of how it got to where it is. They're just more into interested. I mean, you get some the audio files who, who may be, but predominantly most listeners just want to hear something that sounds good. You know. In a blind listening test, no. But, you know, because it's, it's an art form, right? So there is, mm-hmm. it's all subjective. So if, if it helps you get you to where you want to go and you want to use analog or half inch or two inch or whatever or stay in the box, then fine. There's, there's, no, there's no right or wrong answer as such. Mm. Um, you know, even if you're deluding yourself, <laughs> there's a belief that this sounds better, you know. But if it helps you get there and helps you create the music and make the sound you want to make, you know, um, a great yeah. Great, you know, uh, whatever helps you create. Yeah, oh, you know I totally I mean? agree with that. Yeah, if it, if, it, if it makes your workflow more efficient or it, or it helps your workflow, then totally. Just yeah. t- slightly off topic, looking at the yeah. outboard behind you there, because yeah. it's slightly grainy on my back here. Is that a, are those distressors at the top yeah. there that I see? Yeah. I thought they were. I thought yeah. they were. So there's, there's a pair of distressors. That, I've actually got three. There's one down here as well. Oh. Because I, I initially bought a pair, Yeah. and then one of them was always on the snare drum. So I thought, well, I've only got one spare one. So, yeah, yeah I've got three of those. So, I mean, this is all stuff I've collected over 20 years, 25 years of doing this. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the latest thing now, of course, is uh, there you can see the speaker in the sky. I don't know if you can see that. On your... Oh, yeah, I can see. Is that, are you mixing the 5.1? Yeah, well, Atmos. Yeah, oh, Atmos. Okay. Yeah. So my room's gone Atmos now. So. Oh, lovely. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll see. I mean, it, it's amazing whether, whether yeah. it stays and hangs around as a format you know other surround formats have come and gone so mm. we'll see but i mean yeah. it's, it's great it's great fun it's great fun to mix you know yeah i can imagine it's not something i've ever um had the opportunity to i i delved into ambisonics at one point and buying right. and then looked at head related transfer functions and all this yep. sort of business uh, a few years back but um yeah. it kind of fell by the wayside after a while but it's really interesting yeah, 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 to, yeah. i did a fi- i did some 5.1 mixing very crude mixes my ad way back when when i was doing my sure. master's degree but yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah i'd love to, i'd love to get back into it again yeah, yeah well you'll have to come down come down have a listen you know? oh i'd love to that'd be brilliant yeah out of interest where are you based where, where are you uh, from today? sutton southwest london oh okay okay yeah 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 you know a fair amount of my clients are still you know in and around london you know yeah. so uh, I haven't moved out to the country like like Dom and some others have. You know, it's kind of <laughs> yeah. I noticed a uh, a number sort of move because I'm in the southwest, so right. there's a number of sort of mastering studios and there's loud mastering in Taunton, which I know is quite right. a prominent mastering, and there's yep. super audio mastering in Chagford, which is right. I've, I've been yeah, there yeah, a number yeah. of times, so I can't remember the gentleman's name, but he uh, he worked on the. I've got it right in front of me here, actually. He worked on Tubular Bells. Uh, oh, wow. Okay. Goldfield. Right. So, right. yeah, nice. they, they seem to come to because it's, it's quite a nice part of the world down in the South West. I'm yeah. biased. But, um, yeah, yeah. No, no, absolutely, man. I yeah. mean, I, 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 a couple of years ago, I mixed an album for Tori Emos, who has a studio down in Cornwall. Mm. You oh, know, she's nice. lived down there for, I don't know, 20 years or something. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that, you know. But to be honest, most of my work now is remote. Um, people send me files. And, you know, either send files back or we do an online thing where I can stream the mix to them and we can, you know, talk in real time about it. Yeah. 
So yeah, that re- that requisite of having to be in the same room, you know, it doesn't it doesn't exist so much anymore. Which to, to be to be honest, I, I miss. I, I'm I'm not one of those guys that wants to keep the band away. Yeah, um, far from it, you know. Because um, I think when you have people in the room, there's something to be said for that. You know, I, I don't necessarily need the band there when I'm EQ in the hi hat or the second rack tom, you know. But it's that thing of actually once the mix is going. If you have people in the room or you're doing a thing online where it's real time, then you can make 10 decisions in, you know, three minutes, which would have taken 10 emails otherwise, you know. Mm. So there's something to be said for that, you know. Yeah, that was going to be my next question, actually, was, um, <laughs> <laughs> with regards to actually uh, the processes or what you're, the services that you're doing now. So you're not recording, you're just doing sort of remote-based mixing. Um, uh, with regards to that remote-based mixing, are you... Because I know there is software, and I've, look, I've I've briefly looked into it myself, whereby you can stream the session, and the yeah. individual at the other end can listen in real time. Yeah. Are, you, are you offering that sort of service, or is this sort of yeah. like... We'll be right back. So I've got a hunch about a common struggle we all face, mastering. If you're an independent artist or music producer, you've probably encountered the frustration of masters that just don't hit the mark, right? They lack balance and refuse to play nicely across different devices and environments. Ever found yourself wondering, why don't my masters sound like my references? Perhaps you've spent countless hours attempting to master your tracks only to be unsatisfied with the results. Maybe you've tried every Silver Bullet plugin or even dabbled in AI. Or perhaps you're already working with an engineer but you're eager to explore different possibilities. Well, here's the solution you've been searching for, Synth Music Mastering. I'm offering a game-changing opportunity with a one-time free test master for a limited time. Picture elevating your music with my unwavering commitment to quality and a personalized touch that you just don't get with the big mastering studios. The best part, it won't cost you a penny. Just submit your finished mix and let's see how we can transform your music together. Don't let mastering be a mystery any longer. Say goodbye to the frustration and step into a world of sonic excellence. Grab your free test master now, click the link in the episode description, or head over to synthmusicmastering.com. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, there's uh, there's a few companies that, that do, do that kind of thing. I, mm. I use a company called Audio Movers, yeah. uh, that plugin's called Listen To, where... You just stream it down a web. You know, I put it on my Pro Tools master bus, and it streams directly to a web server. Um, there's a little latency; it's about like kind of point one, point two of a second. Um, but it's 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 basically real time. You know, you couldn't record with it. It's not you know obviously the latency is a problem there. But um, but yeah, certainly for streaming mixes and, and communication, it's it's great. You know. Um, but I mean, having said that, I do I do do recording. I have a little booth here. Um, and if I'm producing an artist, then obviously depends what the budget is. We might go. I've got a small booth with you know a vocal mic and guitar amps and even a drum set in the corner. But but it's very much an overdub room. You have to record things one at a time. So if I'm working with a project that's more has to be more of a live band, then uh, then we, you know we'll go to other premises. Um, but yeah, we can come here and do overdubs and whatnot. Um, but yeah, most of my work. Probably probably eighty percent of my work is is mixing, um, and probably ninety percent of that work is remote. Yeah, do you? This is an interesting question. Do you offer a mastering service as well, or do you just do the mixing and then you've got a referrer that or someone you refer the master to, depending on? The I would of music? much rather send it to one of the few mastering engineers that I know and trust. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, these days, of course, budget doesn't always allow that. Yeah. So it's kind of a thing. If if I'm mixing the whole EP or whatever it is or album, and they want me to master it as part of the thing, then sure, I can give you a loud master. You know, I can run it through a limiter and, and get it commercially loud and match the level between tracks. You know, the stuff that a mastering engineer will do. Um, but I think what the mastering engineers are really good at is that objective third opinion you yeah. know there's the artist the mixer or producer whoever and then somebody who's never heard it all before and goes ah you know what this needs and obviously they have great gear great eqs amazing speakers so they can hear everything um as much as i love my room you know it's great having that you know there's there's only a few i trust to be honest mm-hmm. you know there's there's plenty of mastering guys out there who you know are, are pretty good but i wouldn't necessarily you know advise a client to spend loads of money 
because it's not going to be much different than what I would do. That's not to knock mastering engineers. You know, the good ones are really great, and and they're magic. It comes back, and I think mastering engineers hear music in a different way than mm. mix engineers do. You know, they I I don't know what it is. I obviously never trained as a mastering engineer, but if I hear a mix, I'm thinking about balance and yeah. the vocal sound and you know rides and dynamics and and somehow mastering engineers can hear it just as a finished piece of music and go you know what this needs i need to take out a little bit of 400 and add a bit of 7k and it's better um and obviously as a mixer you kind of do some of that yeah but they hear it differently i genuinely believe it's a different way their whole process of how they interact with music recorded music and the finished two-track product they get given is very different than what a mix engineer gets given. So, um, yeah, a, a great mastering engineer is, you know, when it comes back, it, it, like I say, it's kind of magic. It's like, what have you done? I don't understand what you've done, but it's better. That's that's great, you know. Um, and other times it comes back and it's a little bit disappointing and not as good as the loud reference that I've created. So, yeah. Um, so then we have a little, you know, we make sure it's, it gets revised and is better than what I could do on my own, hopefully. Yeah, um, it's ma mastery. I, I guess that's why I remember when I've spoken to mastering engineers and you, you hear the phrase, the dark art of mastering. Yeah. Uh, not, I don't know if they necessarily like it described that way, but uh, it, it is, isn't it? I guess it's it's like you say there, it's because you've got that objectivity and you, you're looking at yeah. it from a totally different viewpoint where as yourself and when I've done mixes, you're sat there and you're you're invested in that mix. You know the, little, the nuances and stuff, whereas that third yeah. party... And just see it from a totally different perspective. Yeah. So yeah. the the audience that we have with the podcast mm. um, probably maybe fall into that category where they they may be outsourcing mastering or they're doing it themselves. If they yeah. are outsourcing mastering, what, what do you think they should look for in in a mastering service? Um, the key thing. I, I guess uh, I guess it's it's more about what they're expecting the mastering engineer to do. Do you know what I mean? Because the mastering engineer is very much a finishing process. So if your balance is not right in your mix, the mastering engineer cannot fix that. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? So particularly with things in the mid-range, you know what I mean? So if your mix overall just needs a little tonal shaping or it needs to be a bit brighter or you've been too heavy with a bass so we need to tuck some stuff, then that's what mastering will sort that out and it's great. But... If you want your snare drum louder, uh, but your vocals are too loud, or you know the balance of the guitars against the keyboards is not right, obviously a mastering engineer is going to have... It's not impossible, but it's very difficult to make that kind of adjustment. So I think you have to be very happy with the balance of your music and the way it makes you feel, or the dynamic changes with your music. Mm -hmm. um, because one of the first things that... When mastering started to get loud... Uh, in the 90s, you know, when I was training, mm. one of the first things you realised what the limiter did was squash your dynamics. So, you know, in in the studio, you'd be going along in the verse, you hit the chorus and it jumps up great. But obviously, once you hit put a limiter on that, the limiter is going to pull the chorus down. Um, so suddenly your dynamic range, your your transition from your verse to your chorus is much less of a jump. Um, so it might not have the impact that you wanted. Um, so what I do is I always mix through a limiter. It'll go on quite late in the process, but I, I, as part of the mixing process, I am hearing what a limiter would be doing that brings it up to commercial loudness levels. Mm -hmm. If you, does that make sense? It does. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm not I'm not printing the mix with the limiter on, or rather I'll print two versions with and without the limiter. Um, but I I have an idea of what the limiter is going to do to the dynamics of the track. And I'm not worried about multi-band processing and, you know, mastering EQ and all that. It's just once I get it to a, le a certain level uh, and it's hitting my mix bus how I want it and the, or the half-inch emulation, you know, it's a zero VU, okay. Then I know that a commercial release is going to be 5 dB louder, you know, because I'm referencing, right? I'm pulling references into my session, so I know... Okay, if I turn down this commercial track 5 dB, then it kind of sounds like my mix approximately. Cool, great. So I know how much gain I need to apply to the limiter to get it up to commercial levels. Yeah. 
Yeah. Is this making sense? It is, yeah. And it, okay, it, it, so, yeah. so then, then I can put a limiter on and make it as loud as commercial release, and I know how it's going to feel going into a chorus or dropping into the second verse or... Do you know what I mean? How yeah. You've got to keep those dynamics because it is part of what makes music exciting. Um, if your verse comes along and you just kind of seamlessly blend into the chorus and then back through to the second verse, <laughs> then obviously it's not going to be as exciting as it could be. Yeah. Um, so I, I need to know what the limiter's doing, even if it's not it's not me that's going to be applying the final limiter. Yeah. So uh, I guess the thing is to get your mix to a state where it sounds and feels really good without the limiter. Yeah. You know, and then the limiter really is only just making it loud. You you know, your mix shouldn't like completely fall apart if you take the limiter off, which I've I've have, have had some rough mixes that are like that, you know. Um, because people are doing too much of the limiter. If you're doing kind of 10 or 12 dB of limiting to get it up to commercial loudness levels, then that's going to massively affect the balance of the mix when you take the limiter off. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Because the limiter's squashing everything, holding it in place. Um, so my advice would be try and mix without the limiter, and, and then the limiter on the end is really only doing, say, 5 or 6 dB. Yeah. Um, and if you send that to a mastering engineer, then hopefully it'll be much closer to what you want it to be. Your mix will be in a better position going on the way to mastering um, if you're not leaning so heavily on the final limiter. Ah, fantastic yeah. advice. It, it, it echoes sense. a conversation okay. I had um, about a month ago with another right. producer because we were discussing... Okay. Um, mix bus and what is on your sorry master bus mix bus yeah. master bus yeah. what is on your master bus when they're mixing and we had yeah. this exact discussion about limiting and how whereby uh, we would put that on the end just to hear get an idea of what it's going to sound like in the mastering phase absolutely and yeah. um, I can't remember if he said that he was mixing into it throughout the whole session probably like yourself it, it came in at the end but yeah. um, audience yeah. listening is is a great great thing to do I, I am I am mixing into a a mix bus chain from the start. So, like I say, if I have, you know, if I have a band in and I want the SSL sound, then I'll put that on right at the start of the mix. Mm. Um, or even if I'm mixing in the box, then, you know, there's a few things in there to emulate kind of analog saturation. So as I mix, it, it's on all the time. I might adjust it, but it's it's on from the start of the mix. Um, and the limiter is on there, but just bypassed. You know what I mean? So. Yeah. At any point, I could just go, okay, what's it sound like if I crash this by 5 or 6 dB? Um, but, yeah, the, 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 the mix bus is more for colour and um, that kind of thing of uh, a, a little analogue flavour if you want it or not. Mm -hmm. You know, I have a tape machine emulation, a UAD one, but, I mean, use whatever you like. Um, you know, so I can instantly go, oh, does this sound better at 15 ips or 30 ips? Yeah. Yeah, Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. you get a flavour through the mix right from the start. Yeah, it's a, 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 so you're running that throughout the whole mix process, and then yeah. you're rendering, bouncing, whatever it may be, printing, printing the mix with, with all that stuff on. Yeah, with all yeah. That the only thing that doesn't get printed is is the final loud limiter. Limiter. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic stuff. I love that. It's, it's giving me food for thought now because I when I've done mixes, I've, I've this this. I've had the, the tape emulation on there, but for yeah. whatever reason, I take it off at the end, which is just going to sure. totally, it's going to, um, it's not going to represent what I've mixed into right at the end, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's surprisingly, you know, even, I mean, what I found, and, you know, your listeners may disagree, is, is that the tape emulators I like to use, I don't slam tape like mm. you would maybe get away with in the old days of a, if you had an actual half-inch machine. Yeah. So what I find is if you're actually pushing it into the red, then it doesn't really distort like tape. It's kind of like that. But I'm kind of using it where it's designed to be used, around zero VU. Yep. Does that make sense? So yeah, you kind does, of, yeah. You know, I'm not pinning the meters. You know what I mean? Maybe plus one, just slightly into the red. But I'm around zero VU. That's where it's designed to be hit on, in an ideal world. And it's one of those things where it, what I want it to do is I want it to be disappointing when I bypass it. Yeah, it's not yeah. like it's not like you put the plug in and you go, oh my god, my mix sounds amazing. That sorted out all my problems. It's more like, oh, if I bypass it, it just feels a bit, oh, it's not, 
you know, it's better yeah. with it in. It's just a little bit of flavor, the little bit of harmonic distortion that our ears like, a little bit of saturation. But I'm not caning it, you know what I mean? Um, and it's there from the start as a flavor. You know, I'm, I'm mixing into it. And if, it, if I want a more clean mix, then I'll probably be running at 30 ips yeah, or yeah, yeah. not at all. If I want, if it's a pop thing, I might not use the the tape machine because it doesn't get you that clean, super punchy, bright, open pop thing. Then I'll be just doing digital something. Yeah. Uh, likewise, if it's an organic band, then sure, I might run it at fifteen nips. They want it to sound like their favorite records, which you know don't have that extended top end. There's you know there's a bit of high frequency saturation that the tape is doing. So you know, kind of it depends on the situation. There's no one size fits all. Yeah. That's the beauty of music, I think, in, in, in creating and mixing. It is the fact that you can go in and you can be creative. You can try things and put something, yeah, a plug in. Uh, I'm, I'm speaking from the mixing in the box here because that's primarily what yeah. I do. But you can yeah. put something on something. And there there is no hard and fast rule um, in terms of what you can and cannot do. Absolutely. Um, what you can create, yeah, yeah. which is the great thing about it, you know. Yeah, and the plugins are so good nowadays. The, yeah. the emulators and, and and the, I remember when plugins, you know, when I first when they first came out, when I, you know, back in when I was at Metropolis, when we were mixing on analog consoles, and and the plugins, they all kind of sounded the same. Mm-hmm. Do, do you know what I mean? It was like, well, you know, okay, this might look like it's one type of EQ, and another one might look like a different type of EQ, but actually, they were all kind of doing the same kind of things, really. Yeah. Uh, and if you matched the cues and the frequencies, they weren't massively different, um, which they are in the analog world. You know, like if you boost, you know, 3K on an SSL, it sounds very different than boosting 3K on an ETH. Yeah. You know, whatever they're doing, the bell shape, the curve, the harmonics that generates, all that's very different. But the early days of plugins, they were kind of all the same. Um, and that's very much different now. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Plugins have color. They have personalities, or some of them do. Um uh, and likewise, you can get the super surgical plugins that you couldn't ever do with an analog EQ. Um, I mean, that's an interesting topic in itself, actually, because occasionally I get sent Pro Tools sessions with, you know, where other people have got it to a certain level and they send it to me to mix and they send me their whole session if they're working in Pro Tools. And one of the common things I see is um, a lot of EQing of very specific narrow frequencies hmm. that basically make no difference when I bypass it. So somebody spent an awful lot of time and effort to pull out, you know, tiny amounts on really narrow Q bandwidths uh, out of a vocal or something. And really, it's like, hmm, uh, this makes no difference when I bypass it, so I'm just going to get rid of the plugin. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it, I think one of the benefits of, you know, coming up with that training on analog consoles is that actually EQ primarily is a tone sculpting thing. You know, all the records you know and love from, well, basically anything before mid-2000s, which was mixed on analog discs, um, you know, the, nobody's super fine sculpting vocals. It's all big moves, tonal control. Um, uh, so, yeah, you know, don't... I would say to your listeners, you know, if you're EQing stuff, go for tone and, and uh, the colour that you want first. Big moves, broad cues, you know... Use the vintage style EQs first to to shape the sound where you want it. And then sometimes there might be some super specific things you can notch out. But, you know, don't waste half an hour notching out six different frequencies with a Q of 30. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And it's it's really interesting you mentioned that because... um, I, I, I live in the, the realm of TikTok, etc. And on that, mm. and I've seen a video, I saw it this weekend, and it was a video on um, EQing vocal. Right. And there was the, the roll-off of the low end. Sure. And then yeah. there was just multiple tiny, like the tiniest cue, uh, right. just dropping frequencies. Yeah. And I'm thinking, like, what is that doing? What could that yeah. possibly be doing to that yeah. to that sound? And it's... And it kind of leads me on nicely to this next question in the, um, the sort of like the difference between sort of a novice mix and a, or a beginner mix maybe and sort of a radio uh, friend, radio friendly or maybe a professional mix. Yeah. Um, it kind of everything you've mentioned up until this point sort of leads on to this question. What, what would be the primary difference between the two? So if you're just starting out mixing, what should yeah. you not be doing? <laughs> um, <laughs> 
I mean, it's a it's obviously a, a big topic. Um, yeah. What are the? I guess the most fundamental thing, um, and there's a nice story actually. I'll tell you about this. It, the the, it, the fundamental thing is is balance, right? Um, and I remember this this was introduced to me very early on in the game, because um, I, I assisted. I had the good fortune to assist uh, a guy called Bill Price, who is is no longer with us, but he's a legendary British engineer. He's worked with everybody. He he produced half of Never Mind the Bollocks for the Sex Pistols. He produced the Clash's Sandinista, mixed. Guns and Roses back in the day, worked with Paul McCartney, you know, br br brilliant engineer. I think he was in-house at Air Studios in the 80s or something, on, on Wessex. But um, So I was assisting him on a Clash live album. And part of my job at the start of the day was to put the reels on, you know, get the faders up, check everything's coming through, label the desk, all that kind of stuff. And I remember some of these live tapes, obviously they're live recordings, so they would come through and they're pretty ropey, you know, um, so I pushed the faders up, and I remember there's I can't remember which which track it was, but there was one time when I went, oh, this one's this one's a bit of a mess, you know, you know, you'll have fun with this one, Bill, you know, and so so I kind of you know left him with the multi track. This is a Metropolis. Uh, went upstairs, make a cup of tea for the two of us, and bring it back down, you know. Um, it only took me five minutes, you know. So, but by the time I came back down, the multi track had gone from what I perceived to be you know a real mess, a real problem to solve. To sounding like a Clash album in wow. five minutes, wow. and I looked at the desk and he'd barely done anything. Um, it was just the balance. It was all in the faders. Yeah, you know he knew how to balance the the, the drums and the bass against the guitars and where the vocals sat against all of that. Um, and Bill was a pretty, you know, minimal mixing engineer anyway. But um, it, it was just that the balance was right for that band and that genre and he knew how to get it you know what i mean my first instinct at that point would have been you know had you know i was still training would have been to dive in with eqs and fix stuff yeah yeah um which you know obviously he went into you know the mix wasn't done in five minutes you know he went into that later on but it it was just that first impression of oh wow this sounds like music now because the balance is musically making sense do you know what i mean like yeah, you, yeah. The, the parts are all working together. Nothing's swamping. Nothing's too loud, too quiet. You know, um, which is a testament to the band too. But um, that, that was that was a real eye opener. Um, and, and then later on, as as, as my training progressed, uh, and I assisted more and more mix engineers, it was that thing of um, like I would look at people's mixes on the board. That's one of the benefits of being an assistant. And the old way of training is that. You know, at the end of the night, it'd be your job to recall everything, print the whatever, vocal up, vocal down, bass up, bass down, you know, instrumental, TV track, masters at the end. Maybe the engineer stayed, maybe he didn't. So you got to see what, what they did, you know, and, and listen to, oh, what has he done with the vocal? Put the put the EQ in and out on the desk or on, you know, on the outboard gear they're using. Oh, I see what that's doing. And, and none of these guys who were great engineers I assisted, you know, Alan Mulder, Stephen Fitzmaurice, um, Jim Abyss, uh, so many, so, you know, loads of great mixers passed through Metropolis. Um, and there was no magic frequency. There was nothing on the desk that they were doing any different than what I was doing. But it was just that level of attention to detail. You know, it wasn't like Alan Mulder's vocal sound or snare drum sound was some magic magic frequency in the SSL that nobody else used. You know, everybody had the same tools. Do you know what I mean? Um, which is kind of like it is today as well. You know, everybody's got the same plugins, more or less. You know, all stuff that does the same thing. So it was just the attention to detail and the, and the tiny, tiny changes, the, the 10,000 tiny changes that they'd done to everything across the whole desk or, or in the, you know, in the box nowadays. There was no magic secret source, which I was kind of you know, led to believe, oh, yeah. uh, you, you know, maybe if I just find that magic kick drum frequency, you know, is it 80 hertz or 90 hertz? Or maybe it's 65 hertz. I don't know. Do, do you know what I mean? There was nothing yeah, like yeah. super special. It was they were kind of doing what everybody else was doing, uh, which was, you know, a, a, again, a, that was another lesson. It was like, okay, it's actually the reason their mixes sound so good is because they've made 10,000 tiny decisions. It's not like some amazing secret that only they knew. Yeah. Do you, do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, 
So again, I think you know, there's a lot of stuff on the internet about oh, this is the magic sauce. Yeah, uh, yep, well, yep. the silver bullet. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, it might help you. I'm not saying it's not, but it's not, and it's not going to apply in every case. Yeah. Do, do you know what I mean? Um, depending on the aesthetic of the band and, and and what the artist wants, whether they want it to sound that way. Do, do you know what I mean? Um, yeah, yeah. If you're mixing the drums for. You, you know, a, a super hype—I don't know—a really heavy rock band, as opposed to mixing the drums for a band that wants to sound like Neil Young. It's going to be very different. Your approach mm. well, should be different. <laughs> so, like so that, there's yeah. no—you know—there's no magic formula that's always going to work. Yeah. Um, so yeah, balance. Mm-hmm. Um, be be bold with with your with your EQ and, and and tonal changes. You know, if something wants to be bright, then make it bright. Yeah. You know. Um, if something needs to be, you need to pull all the mid range out of it, then do it. You know, um, don't don't be too subtle with it. I think somebody said that to me early on when I was when I was you know still in Assistant Metropolis. Like they listened to one of my mixes and it was one of the other assistants actually, um, and he said, "Oh yeah, you you're being very conservative with your EQ." And I kind of took. I was like, "Okay, yeah." Um, particularly, I, I know like your audience, um, there's a lot of synth. Yeah, a lot of synth kind of fanatics in, in your crowd, and and the great thing about synths and and in, instrumental music or, or synth based type music is that there's not uh, your ear doesn't know what to expect. Do you know what I mean? If if you hear yeah, somebody yeah. singing, you hear a vocal or an acoustic guitar, it kind of has to sound a certain way because that your your ear is used to hearing that in yeah. the real world. Whereas with the synth, you can you can EQ you know, 20 dB at 3K into it or pull out whatever, completely roll off the top. There's there's absolutely no rules because there is nothing natural in a synth sound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you know, particularly with those kind of instruments uh, or synth drums, same thing, you know, that there's no... It doesn't have to sound a certain way. Uh, so you can be really bold with the, with, with the way you shape the sound in a way that you can't if it's an acoustic kind of band does that make sense so it, it does yeah and I you think know you can you can be really bold with, yeah i mean yeah. Uh, like uh, uh, I've, I've got sent some synth type tracks recently mm. and again everything's really big and wide mm. and stereo so if everything's big and wide and stereo then it's it's almost like giant mono it yes, doesn't necessarily yeah. <laughs> feel wide because you've got mm-hmm. one wide synth sound on top of another wide synth sound. Actually, you, it'll make it'll feel wider if you pan one synth sound as a mono sound all the way to the left and a completely different synth sound as pan it all the way to the right, both sides. So you've got differences in the left and right, and that will mm-hmm. make it feel wide Yeah. Um, in a way that you can't do if everything's just coming up the middle 100% wide stereo. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you, with synth stuff, you can really go to town with it. There is, you know, there's no need to be notching out tiny frequencies and getting specific with it. <laughs> you know, be bold with it. You know. Yeah, I, I, it's fantastic that you mentioned there about the stereo width of the synth track. Because my question was, you, you preempted my question, which was going to be, how do you stop that wide stereo spread from sounding mono? And it's exactly like <laughs> you said there, is where you have those, you have the different timbre, I guess you could call it, of, the, of your synth instruments on the left and right. So yeah, have that. That difference there, uh, uh, absolutely. And I mean, uh, it, it, I think it's, it, I think the temptation is to go down the route of oh, I'll, oh, I'll, I'll just use a stereo widener on this synth and not that one. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, I mean, not that anybody's that bothered about mono compatibility these days, but it, it, it kind of still does affect some playback devices. Um, you know, like uh, my daughter had a. Uh, some kind of boombox thing, docking station, and there was one speaker on it. Do you, do you know what I mean? So yeah, yeah. in in you know 2020, so you're kind of going, okay, uh, that's that's odd. And obviously, if you're listening out of a phone, it's effectively mono, um, or or any other kitchen radio type source. And the thing, the danger with stereo wideners is that actually anything that gets wider in stereo usually cancels a bit in mono. Um, so you have to be careful about using them. Because something that you wanted to be massive and wide, actually, if it's played back on something that's more like a mono device, like, I forget which it is. Is it an Alexa or a HomePod? One of those two is effectively a mono speaker. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, you know, even, even nowadays, there are mono playback devices. So 
uh, you know, you, you you should check in mono, really, just to check that it's not completely disappearing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's tricky. It's tricky. Yeah. What are your thoughts on mixing in mono out of interest? Uh, I, I don't mix in mono. I, I no. check in mono. I, I will yeah, definitely yeah. check in mono. Um, but although I check in mono, I, I, I have two speakers, so... Um, oh, those are my speakers. So oh, yep, you yep. got the the Genelex. Uh, can where is it? Can you see that? Yeah, yeah. So, so there you go. That's the main Genelex, and then yep. up here, these little Avantone guys. Oh, I've seen that. I've seen those in so many studios. The, the little yeah, yeah, little mix cubes they're called. Mm. Um, so I I have two of those. There's another one. Oh, there you go. That's much better setup. Um, so the the Avantones are like, you know the the crappy car radio or yeah, kitchen yeah. kitchen kitchen stereo um so i use those for checking mono um but i'm, I'm still listening through two speakers so yeah, it's yeah, yeah. it's mono through two speakers not not true single speaker mono yeah um but yeah i'll, I'll check it absolutely absolutely for, mainly for things like balance and rides so say for example you have a guitar or synth panned one side and your vocals coming down the middle and it's a call and answer thing. I've just done this on a mix. Um, so the call and answer thing sounds great in stereo because you can hear the, the the counterpoint away from the vocal very clearly yeah. in stereo. Mm. But if you put it in mono, then they both sit on top of another one another. So you have to make sure that the guitar pokes through where it needs to and the vocal comes back. Um, so that's kind of what I use to to check mono. It's more that the music still makes some kind of sense in mono. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? The interplay between the instruments. Uh, can I hear that bass fill? Can I hear that guitar fill? Mm-hmm. Can I hear all the lyrics on the vocal? You know, um, that's kind of what I check in mono. Usually at quite a quiet level. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, if that makes sense. It's, mm-hmm. it's so I don't mix. Obviously, it's you know 2023. No, nobody's mixing for dedicated mono unless. You really want to punish yourself, you know. So, <laughs> um, or or the aesthetic you're mixing for is that it's mono. Do you know what I mean? If it's, yeah, yeah. I can't. I mean, I can't even think of an example now. But maybe some of the retro type stuff. I mean, I know Dap Kings. You know, Mark Ronson's band. Yeah, yeah. They're stereo very much so. But if you were being super authentic or trying to recreate something, you might mix for mono only. But I've never done that. No, no, no. It's interesting. It's a, I often ask this question to people when it comes to mixing um, <clears throat> and mixing in mono. Yeah. Because <clears throat> like yourself, I use it primarily just to make sure. But like you mentioned there about so everything has its place and I can hear everything that I need to hear when I should. Yeah. And nothing's yeah. masking anything else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think I think actually just uh, I've just thought of something like uh, I don't know if, if a lot of your listeners are mixing on headphones or only or something. Mm, yes, yes, yeah. I mean that it it, it it's great. Don't get me wrong. Headphones are amazing um, for any number of things, uh, particularly for checking edits and whatever. But there yeah. is a danger with them where it comes to uh, uh, phase and the perception of phase, particularly phase cancellation on headphones. Like your headphones can actually be completely out of phase, which on a, on a pair of speakers would would turn your head inside out. You get that really uncomfortable feeling where you know there's nothing in the middle and and it feels oh, yes. like, yeah, yeah. feels like you're half underwater. <laughs> that doesn't happen on headphones at least not to my my ears like it's very interesting like i can put a mix completely out of phase and it'll sound different but it won't sound like it's making me sick in a way that it does when your speakers are completely out of phase yeah do do, 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 do you know what i mean you know that feeling Mm. yeah yeah it's it's been a very long time since i've experienced it i think it was when i was at university and we we did a trial just to see what it what what it was like yeah yeah it's yeah. it's so I'm, I'm obviously I'm not talking about your whole mix being out of phase. Hopefully it's not. I'm talking about individual elements within that being out of phase or phasey. Yeah, it's actually quite hard to hear on headphones, uh, yeah. which is something that presents itself immediately on speakers. So you know, like I say, headphones. I, I definitely check my mixes on headphones. I spend a good amount of time, you know, um, particularly with vocals and editing and clicks and pops and that kind of stuff on headphones. You know. Um, because you're removing the environment, so you can have it quite yeah. close to you. Can hear all that stuff in a really detailed way, which is great. Um, but I think again, sometimes when you're mixing on headphones, because you can hear all the detail, you're not as bold as you should maybe be. So, the the trouble I've had with headphones, if I do a mix 
too long on headphones and then I put it back on the speakers, it always feels a bit flat mm -hmm. because I can hear all the details and I can hear that second guitar part and I can hear all the vocal harmonies because it's really close to my head. But when you put it on speakers in the real world, suddenly it, 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 everything doesn't quite pop out as much as you were used to on headphones. Yeah, I guess it's because it's, with, with the headphones, it's inside of your head, isn't it? The sound is, is in here. Yeah. Yeah, and usually it's yeah. a bit louder and, and yeah. you have no real-world noise and distractions. Mm. So, I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. It's, it's like I understand it's a budget choice as well for a lot of people. Um, and headphones are great, and you can get some great headphones nowadays. But I would say if even if you check your mixes on a pair of budget speakers, it'll give you a real-world you know, kind of perspective on it. I mean, yeah. what we used to do in the old days was, you know, you'd classically, you'd spend all day in front of the, on the SSL in front of the speakers, you know. Um, but as soon as you walked to the back of the room and sat down on the couch, you would hear your mix differently. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. It's yes. just a different perspective suddenly or, I mean, amazingly, like when somebody else walks in the room, even if you're sat in exactly the same place, just having somebody else in the room makes you hear your mix differently. Even if it's not one of the band or the producers, yeah, uh, I don't know if your listeners have ever experienced that, but I, I'm not. Is that is that to do with the psychological element of having someone else in the room, yeah. just just there, present with you, and yeah. knowing so, someone else is there, and you start to perceive your mix differently because someone else is listening to it. Yeah, exactly. It takes yeah. you out of that focus of you being so into the details, and suddenly makes you listen to it from an objective listener's point of view. Mm. You know, somebody who's just walked in the room. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, definitely sit on the sofa at the back or listen from the doorway with a cup of tea or something because it will get your head back into that kind of fresh space where you're not hearing it the same way you've been hearing it for the last two hours with your head down in front of the speakers. Yeah. Um, oh, great yeah. advice. Great advice. Um, <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I'm doing a lot of talking. <laughs> no, no, no. It's fantastic stuff. I've got I've got one more question, and this question yeah. comes from our community group. So this is from a right. uh, producer from called Blockhouse. I think his name's Nick, if I remember right. Right. Okay. Um, I'm glad he asked asked this question because it, it touches on the Depeche Mode. Enjoy the silence live in Berlin video, which right. I have rinsed and repeated so many times. Yeah, it's so good. <laughs> um, and he says uh, he's interested in your uh, work recording live shows. Um, he says, in my own experience, live performances can lose something when they're recorded. So what do you do to ensure that the recording captures the energy and atmosphere of the live show in the mixing process? Okay, yes. Um, it, it, it's interesting you talk about the Depeche Mode one, actually, because um, before uh, it was Daniel Miller, who was the head of Mute, who I, I did a lot of work for at the time, um, uh, and he asked me to mix the Depeche Mode 5-1. Uh, mm -hmm. I'd never worked with a band before. Um, and his specific brief to me was, I want to be able to hear the crowd interaction and I want to hear the crowd singing when they sing. Yeah. Because he felt that was always lacking from, from previous versions. And, and obviously, if you go to a Depeche Mode gig, you know, there's a load of hardcore fans down yeah, the front, yeah. with, particularly with something like Enjoy the Silence. So really, mm -hmm. it's part of that atmosphere. Um, the way they interact, you know, obviously what makes a life recording exciting, hopefully. So his specific instruction was make sure you get as much of that as you can. Um, and at uh, the, uh, in Berlin, that they were actually doing two nights there with a day off in between. So we actually had the benefit of being able to put mics up on the first day. And then I had a day where I could listen to the mixes, you know, do do some quick mixes and listen to the recording from the first night before we had, before they played the second night. So we actually changed some of the mic positions of the uh, audience oh, cool. capture mics for the second night because um, we were trying to capture that front row. Yeah. So, I mean, this is very specific, but it, it in a venue sometimes, you know, we, we put up extra ambience mics hanging from the, you know upper balconies and stuff and, and and where the front of house position is but they often they're often capturing the sound in the room so it's almost like you're recording the venue the pa yeah it's not actually got that much crowd in it does that make sense because the crowd does, yeah the most interactive part of the crowd is at the front of the audience so actually we had mics on the stage behind the pa just behind the pa but pointing at the front rows of the crowd um, which were immensely useful for capturing that live energy. Yeah. Um, and it, it worked out well, you know, it worked out well. Um, 
it, it capturing a good life show is obviously you know the the band have to give it and the, obviously Depeche Mode are great you know they're yeah it's a fabulous band you know yeah. the energy they all have on stage from from you know Dave the singer to to Christian the drummer um, Pete Gordino playing keys you know I mean they're all they're all brilliant so so what what they're giving you is fantastic to start with um, and then obviously if you capture the crowd properly then you've got that interaction which which is 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 gold you know it's it's is it's what you're going for um and, and then the only thing is not to make it sound too studio so obviously you want the instruments to sound good um but the the energy from the crowd if you mix the crowd too low then it's particularly on a big stage like Depeche Mode you know the, the guitar amps are 20 feet from the keyboards and they're 20 feet from the drums so it's almost like you're in a studio anyway because yeah, yeah. the spill the spill on stage is so low um, so you're not going to get that interaction you need the audience mics to make it make it have that energy um, and then you just got to be careful not to mix it out of the of the of the final product you know yeah um in a smaller venue, if, if your audience members are recording their own live gigs and things, then, you know, like I say, definitely try and get mics maybe on the stage but pointing at the crowd, if you know yeah. what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then the energy of what comes down the vocal mic, if there is a vocal mic on stage, like you're going to get a lot of spill mm -hmm. from the crowd down that vocal mic. So, again, obviously you have to turn it down, but don't completely gate it out. Because it's going to sound really odd when it comes, it comes in and back out. In. Yeah, 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 and and actually, you you do get a kind of certain ambience from the crowd going down the vocal mic and then into whatever vocal reverb you're using. Mm -hmm. So don't clean it up too much. Yeah, it's it, it's it's tricky. It's really hard. It involves immense amounts of fader rides. Like you look at the lead vocal fader on on that Depeche Mode thing or any other the live things I've done, and you know it's, it's I turn it down maybe ten dB when it's when the singer's not singing and then back up or whatever but it's all about the rides the fader rides yeah yeah um does that that make sense it does yeah I mean, it does it's all quite technical and quite esoteric really but um no no i think i think you're exactly right i remember when i played in live live gigs and we sometimes record them and it, a lot of it was i remember we did one recording and then it was mixed but it was mixed to sound like a studio recording and right. then you, yeah you just it just just lost everything. The the fact that it was live, it might be yeah. because we played quite bad. This <laughs> is quite possibly what it was. Um, but yeah, I think capturing the audience is is huge, and yeah, I think that's, that, that's, that's why I love that video so much because of the interaction in it. Did yeah. you replace any? Because I know you said you didn't have any issues with the spill. Well, that obviously the no. spill was minimal. But yeah. did you replace any particular sounds? Did no. you do any, any overdubs in it, or is it just nope. all? There are no overdubs performed? in that. That's as it came off stage. I mean, I th wow. you know, there will have been a couple of edits mm. in terms of like, oh, you know, I might have just nudged a couple of things because you know somebody came in early or something. But there's no yeah. fixes with a with a band like that. I mean, you know, they're obviously great musicians. Yeah, They've been yeah. touring for years. They know exactly what they're playing. Um, no, there's no, there's no. I'm not, I'm not having to conversate on the thing and there were certainly no overdubs um you know i mean i think albums in the live albums in the 70s you know that there were a few notable ones that kind of actually were basically replayed in the studio um <laughs> but not no 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 certainly not with depeche mode no need no need to yeah, do yeah. that <laughs> when you when you you've honed your skill set to that extent then yeah like yeah. i said they've been playing for so long it's yeah absolutely and actually it must have been an absolute joy to um to work with Oh, it was a total pleasure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. It's a fantastic. I, I'm probably going to watch it again after this interview. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I watch it quite frequently because, and it's. I, don't, I think it's also it's going off on a bit of tangent now, but it's the visual in the background as well. Yeah. It's kind of like you look at it and it's it's the yeah, sound yeah, yeah. and it's the visual and it's the performance and everything in it. Yeah, yeah. Just... That's that's Anton Corbijn. Obviously, he's yeah. a genius at what he does, and you know has had a, a long collaboration with the band. So, mm. yeah, the visuals on that whole thing were, were incredible. You know, the projected yeah. big projector screens and stuff, and um, yeah, it was, it was yeah it was quite an experience. You know, uh, yeah. I, I actually saw their show in London, uh, the O2 first to yeah. meet some of the crew and whatnot and sort out technicalities, and then. Yeah, I was flown out to Berlin, spent three days in Berlin with them. But um, yeah, I mean, yeah, brilliant, brilliant. All, all the crew around them as well, you know, just first rate, all of them. Stunning, you know. Fantastic. 
Adrian, we're coming up to the hour mark now. So, uh, oh, really? Wow. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. It's, it's, I, t- I tell you, I've got all those questions written down. I, I okay. never get through them all, but which is yeah. fine because it's it's one of those organic things. It's just a conversation and the questions come up. That's yeah. why I'm sort of like writing as you're talking. Thinking, oh, I want to ask that in a minute and ask that bit. Um, but once a big thank you for joining me on this today. And I know the audience are going to get so much out of this. These these interviews oh, are great when we talk. And I talk to um, mix engineers and producers and whatnot. Um, yeah. If our audience want to learn a bit more about you, where, where can they find you online? Uh, I just through my website, I guess, um, www.adrian-hall, H-A-L-O, dot com. Um, it's got a list of credits and whatnot and, and you know, various various music videos, including the Depeche Mode thing, I yes, think. Yes, um, yeah. Yeah, but, uh, you know, I'm, uh, my email's up there as well, so if they want to get in touch, feel free, you know. Brilliant. I'm, I'm not at that level of mix engineer where somebody's screening all my messages and all that kind of stuff, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's just me, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. I will put that link in the um, the episode notes as well. So, yeah, uh, yeah. Sure. Any questions that people have, you know, if, if people want to ask me something, I'm happy to, oh, that's amazing. Happy to follow thank up. You. Brilliant stuff. All right, I will let you enjoy the rest of your Sunday today. And uh, once again, a huge thank you for joining me on oh, this Thank Brilliant. you for having me. Brilliant. Cheers, buddy. Cheers, Mark. Bye. Hi, this is Carl from Neon Highway. My favourite episode of Inside the Mix podcast is episode 46 with Sunglasses Kid. Sunglasses Kid absolutely has his finger on the pulse of synth music and modern songwriting. In this episode, you'll hear him walk through his approach and his own experiences with creating a name for himself in the scene. Just a friendly reminder before you go, don't miss out on your free Test Master at Synth Music Mastering. Imagine enhancing your music with my dedicated commitment to quality and that personalised touch. And guess what? It's absolutely free of charge. To claim your free Test Master now at synthmusicmastering.com or click on the link in the episode description.